Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. In the U.S., we've been trained to call 911 almost regardless of the circumstances. And who responds to those calls? Well, police officers. Even when they may not have specialized training for the crisis at hand. Think of a mental health emergency or a domestic dispute. But what if things were different? What if police didn't handle mental health calls or paperwork? Could fewer responsibilities lead to better policing? For our series Reimagine Chicago, where we examine the city's major institutions, we continue to look at public safety, how it works in the city, and how it can work better. On the line with us now is Arturo Carrillo, Director of Violence Prevention and Neighborhood Initiatives at the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. He's also the lead organizer for the Collaborative for Community Wellness, a citywide coalition of community groups. Arturo, welcome back. Hello, thank you for having me. Arturo, you've been organizing around mental health access and researching barriers for several years now. How does Chicago handle mental health emergencies and how does that intersect with policing? Yeah, you know, the police are the frontline crisis response for the city of Chicago. That's been historically the case. There's been a significant increase in investment to policing throughout the decades, while at the same time there's been a significant disinvestment in public mental health services. So as a result, what you have is you you have the frontline response to crisis handled by police that kind of funnels people down two channels, right? Either they are involuntarily hospitalized, and as a result, you see the highest rates of behavioral health hospitalization on Chicago's west side and south side, or they are funneled through the carceral system, and as a result, you see you know, the, the biggest mental health hospital in the country by way of Cook County Jail, right? So that's been the system that we've, we've embraced in the city for way too long. You're a proponent of the Trauma Not Treatment Ordinance, which would reallocate funds away from CPD and into public mental health services. How would that work? Yeah, you know, we, we called for and introduced a council uh, order that was introduced uh, back in September of 2020. We called for the creation of a non-police crisis response system in which we had a paramedic, a social worker, uh, or a behavioral health worker, and a peer support worker uh, all be make up uh, teams of outreach that can respond to crisis. We envision an alternative crisis response line that could be able to be um, used by community residents who are hesitant to call 911. And we saw that the city had a great opportunity to expand its public mental health system to be the the backbone to this crisis response system. We saw that also the investment and reestablishment of public mental health clinics could be the space for follow-up care, triage, and and the opportunities to expand into neighborhoods that are currently underinvested in and, and areas that are you know, currently mental health deserts. So we saw that, of course, crisis response would more than likely be in areas of the city where there are no access or very limited access to mental health services. This treatment on trauma ordinance would have been, is the opportunity to establish that system and create something that is happening in other other parts of the the country. Of course, we look to Eugene, Oregon and Cahoots and their model as, as a guiding model that has been in operation for over 30 years. But also, you know, since then, we've seen other cities establish these systems, and we've, we've looked to them for guidance as well. Well, you mentioned being inspired by programs like Cahoots. What did you take from them? Yeah, you know, one of the beautiful things, and we saw many videos, we participated in trainings with Cahoots uh, staff. It was really eye-opening to see how their crisis response is really 
based around dignity of the human being, the dignity of the person, giving people voluntary access to any services that they would need at that moment, right? And none of that was done by coercion or by involuntary hospitalization or involuntary incarceration. But we saw that the CAHOOTS model is very much uh, one that, that embraces people in a crisis to de-escalate, to support, to provide that ongoing follow-up care. But they are also based out of a mental health center, right? And so, you know, we saw that in, in, in parallel to what we have here in Chicago, where we have five public mental health clinics that remain, we saw that as, again, a building block for creating crisis response where we could have a mental health community center be the, the base for these crisis response here in Chicago and establish and begin to establish that system citywide. So we were really encouraged to hear how they treated people. Uh, we were really encouraged to hear how that sort of investment in the non-police crisis response really can give people humane treatment while also preventing ongoing crisis from escalating. And we will actually be speaking with a representative at the White Bird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon, up next to learn more about the CAHOOTS program. Uh, Now, Arturo, Mayor Lightfoot actually introduced her own proposal for a a co-responder model where police and mental health professionals would work side by side. And now the city's piloting two separate programs, one that involves CPD and one that does not. What are your thoughts on this approach? Yeah, we are very, very much discouraged that the mayor has really intentionally, from the start, only considered a co-responder model. You know, we saw that the the investment that she proposed was pennies. I mean, we're talking about initial investment was budgeted to be a million dollars. You know, we see other cities uh, invest many, many times over what she proposed as her initial pilot uh, in this co-responder model. You know, we have a real problem with that model, right? One of the things is we've seen in the data that people with untreated mental illness or mental health crises are 16 times more likely to be killed by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, and CIT training does not go far enough to address that. I'll remind your listeners that Derek Chauvin was a CIT trained officer. We think about police in crisis response as the problem. You know, the presence of police are, by just their nature of, of being there, a point of escalation, right? You see police presence. I don't know about you, but when I see a police kind of like pull up behind me and I'm having a great day, Ooh, terrifying. I, feel, you know, I feel anxious. I start getting more panicky just because a police car is pulling up behind me. Absolutely. Could you imagine what it is to be dealing with a mental health crisis and then have a police show up? Regardless if they're accompanied by a social worker or not, you have a presence of an armed officer. Absolutely. Right? So, so what we see is that the, the, the only way to prevent and to ensure safety for people in mental health crisis is by removing police officers from that equation. That's the only way we can guarantee that there can be the safety for people in crisis to be able to get the de-escalation support that they need and, and be connected voluntarily to the services that they would benefit from at the moment. Well, I want to play a clip of uh, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez of the 33rd Ward. We talked to her about this issue back in March. She compared the way that the city allocates resources for mental health uh, versus policing. Let's listen to that. The Department of Health has less than 500 employees ready to oversee the public health work in the city. We have over 13,000 police officers. So we had police officers doing wellness checks during COVID. We paid for that. Wow. <laughs> I think that that is unacceptable. And I think that we have seen how other cities have been shifting from using police to response to virtually everything 
to actually using the right tools, which is clinicians, EMTs, peer support workers. And I am really pleased that we are finally going into that direction, but I am also really worried that there has not been a commitment to actually shift funding from policing so that we can strengthen these programs more. Arturo, the older woman mentioned diverting funding from policing to the Department of Mental Health. Is that the solution or is it more complicated than that? That is a solution, unfortunately. I mean, it's been a decision of our elected officials in the city to increase investment by 300% in policing while disinvesting, I'm mean, talking about 300% over three decades, and disinvesting in public mental health resources. Uh, Other woman Rosana is absolutely right. You know, that, that disproportionate a number of city-funded employees going to policing as opposed to CDPH behavioral health conditions. And of the 500, just to clarify her number, of the 500 CDPH uh, employees she's mentioning, we're talking about a fraction of that, maybe about 20 are behavioral health employed uh, clinicians. And that's that's a political decision. You know, this, this administration has been very intentional uh, to promote their solution as subcontracting out to the nonprofit sector, as though the nonprofit sector can handle citywide crisis management. And mm-hmm. that's unfortunately not the case. Nonprofits are overwhelmed. I'll say that as somebody who's been a social worker in the nonprofit sector my entire career, you know, what we see is an investment that the mayor touts of $8 million to subcontract to nonprofit providers. And when you compare that to a $1.8 billion police budget, you know, we're talking about a fraction of a penny that is being invested in public mental health. What we've been calling for has been the investment of the CDPH mental health system to be, again, equally invested in in the way we see policing and responding to crisis by having trained behavioral health clinicians paid for and operating out of and employed by the CDPH mental health clinics Mm -hmm. in order to establish a citywide system of care that can be managed centrally and can be uh, proactive in responding to crisis in a way that that currently, unfortunately, all the investment is poured into policing. To put it to you another way, for every dollar that the city spends on policing, we're talking about less than two cents are going to public health and even less than that are going to mental health direct services. Arturo, the trauma not treatment ordinance is stuck in committee right now. So what would it take to bring the issue back to the table? Yeah, well, we need political courage by our elected officials. We need aldermen to stand up and demand action uh, in a way that can be, one, uh, acknowledging that the political winds have shifted. This co-responder model is something that is a thing of the past at this point. Many cities, including New York City, have just announced that they are rolling out citywide non-police crisis response systems. Again, we're talking about New York City. This is something that the mayor has criticized in the past, saying that the the model in Eugene would not be applicable here in Chicago. She used her budget address to make that point. Mm -hmm. And what we see, of course, is that other cities are realizing that that's actually not the case. You know, Albuquerque, for example, has a deputy-level mayoral-appointed department that is entirely dedicated to crisis response without police. So what we would call for our elected officials, our aldermen citywide, is to put a halt to the implementation of the co-responder model, establish a subcommittee to really examine this issue with public input, with public participation, in a space with public oversight, which would be the city council. That's why we have a health committee, and and within that health committee, we would envision and and call for the creation of a subcommittee to examine and establish a non-police crisis response system that could, again, be accountable to the public. So part of what we're asking for is at this point uh, that at least $50 million are invested from federal relief dollars. We estimate that uh, to create a crisis response system citywide, we would be talking about $100 million uh, investment to to establish that system and expand the public mental health clinics that would be necessary to be the follow-up care and 
and Backbone for this crisis response system. Again, $100 million, the city is about to receive $2 billion of federal relief, right? right. The money is there. It will take the political will and the push by our, our aldermen to ensure that this mayor can finally catch up to the rest of the country and, and create this non-police crisis response uh, at the scale that we need. And to that end, Arturo, what do you want the mayor to understand about your push to remove police from these mental health calls? It's not necessary to respond to calls, and it actually perpetuates harm on communities of color. We've heard instances, and I could point to many examples that have showed up both in the newspaper and in just uh, in community anecdotal experiences, where the presence of police have led to the incarceration of people who are dealing with mental health crisis. And as a result, you know what we see is people are reluctant to call 911 to to receive care in any form. And so what then that leads to, unfortunately, is untreated trauma to be and continue to be festering in communities where, where what we need is proactive opportunities to engage and support people with, with healing. Our coalition was extremely, extremely disappointed after our budget fight in 2019, where we called for the increased investment in the public mental health clinics. And there was half a million dollars allocated for public awareness campaigns of the CDPH public mental health clinics. Half a million dollars was allocated but not utilized. That entire money was left unspent in 2020 while we were dealing with the biggest pandemic globally that our generation has ever seen. And the mental health needs that have come since have been unaddressed. Our research citywide shows that people are are dealing with overwhelming mental health needs at this moment. And our data is showing that residents of the city are not even aware that the city has five public mental health clinics to offer free services to everybody who who would be willing to access those services. Mm -hmm. And that has been a direct result of the mayor's reluctance to promote these clinics and these services. Well, on that reluctance, the mayor and also the uh, superintendent, David Brown, They argue that officers are needed in this co-responder model to provide safety. Do you agree with that on the safety aspect? No, I mean, the data The data does not show that. We're looking at pilot programs that are being implemented in, in major cities like Denver, for example. You know, Denver has uh, initiated a non-police crisis response system, and in six months of their pilot, none of those calls required police backup. Police are going to be a presence in the city regardless. Police will be able to respond to all sorts of calls, as you know, Commissioner Brown mentioned in the clip you played. But who is going to be the first to respond, right? Who is going to be the first to engage a person in crisis? If you have an armed officer present, that will immediately increase the risk for everybody on that scene. If we have, again, non-police force to have uh, trained professionals who can engage people and de-escalate, uh, as we've seen in data from Denver and other cities, the police are not necessary and are not even called, as we saw in that six-month pilot data, in any of the calls that were routed to this non-police crisis response, right? So that means no one's harmed, no one's incarcerated, and people are able to be connected safely to services and, and resources that they need at that moment. What can we do about this on the state level? Well, you know, we've been really encouraged to see, you know, the leadership in Springfield statewide. There's been the passage of the CESA bill by both the Senate and the House that is awaiting the signature of the governor to call for the creation of a non-police crisis response system in every EMS district in the entire state. Uh, That means that even in Chicago, there will be a call for the creation of a non-police crisis response 
again, statewide, that is very encouraging. That is very much forward-thinking by our leadership in, in Springfield. And, and we are very much disappointed that in this city, you know, the mayor is very much intent to roll out a co-responder model, regardless of what everybody else, professionals uh, in the field, uh, experts in the field, and other cities are doing, right, and what they're recommending. Well, before I let you go, Arturo, any final thoughts on how we can reimagine public safety here in Chicago, just to better respond to these mental health emergencies? Yeah, you know, the safest neighborhoods in the city uh, are not the ones that have the most police, right? The safest neighborhoods in the city are the ones that have the most resources. And so it takes, again, a very clear, deliberate intention on our elected officials to think about and reimagine safety by talking about in real shifts in investments to bringing these resources and support and preventative services that are necessary to support community residents instead of relying exclusively on policing. And, and again, our city budget shows that. You know, we have nearly 40% of our corporate dollars going to policing. This is discretionary spending. And when 40% of the discretionary spending goes to policing, you know, you have little left for anything else. And so for us, we really think about how we need to increase investment And again, the federal relief that is coming can establish the groundwork without even having to tap into uh, the city revenue. We have $2 billion to create and re-envision what real safety and investment in communities looks like. And this is the opportunity to do so. We want federal relief to go directly to communities. That's Arturo Carrillo of the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council and the Collaborative for Community Wellness. Arturo, thank you so much. Thank you. So far, we've talked about public safety issues like police militarization and use of force. And we also dug into the obstacles to reform, from the union contract to the culture of the police department itself. And as we've been talking about what reimagining policing in Chicago could look like, one name kept popping up. Cahoots. It's a program out of Eugene, Oregon, launched by local community health center Whitebird Clinic. Cahoots stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets and sends mental health responders in the field for nonviolent emergencies. And it's been working there for more than 30 years. To help us understand CAHOOTS and what lessons Chicago might pick up from a program like this is Dan Feltz. He's a mental health professional and crisis responder with Whitebird Clinic. Dan, welcome to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me. Dan, how does CAHOOTS work exactly? So CAHOOTS works by dispatching mental health workers and a medic in a two-person team to various forms of calls for public health assistance. We show up unarmed, with curiosity, and listening ears, and we try to do what we can to de-escalate and connect folks with resources in the community. So you show up unarmed. Why? Why was that important? Well, much of the time when we're showing up, it's on the worst day of someone's life, and possessing a weapon in general is something that uh, makes people uncomfortable. I know when I you know, see someone open carrying, um, that tends to heighten my awareness that I might not be in a safe situation. And our clients feeling safe is paramount to them actually communicating with us and letting us know what might be helpful to get them to a better spot. Our previous guest, Arturo Carrillo, mentioned something that I think a lot of folks can relate to. When they see an officer, the, the uniform, the badge, the gun, the squad car, right? They immediately get nervous. So when you and other CAHOOTS crisis responders show up and you're showing up unarmed, as you mentioned, are you even wearing a uniform? We wear a T-shirt that say CAHOOTS on them, hats, um, and we do wear police radios. And, and for some folks, you know, that is triggering as well. 
just seeing that that radio. But you know, we do everything that we can to communicate with our body language, with open hands. Hey, we're here to help. We're not here to make you do anything. We don't have any authority over people. Um, we're not going around forcibly medicating folks. We, we don't impinge on people's rights. Uh, we're we're there to get the client to communicate to us how we might be of service to them. What kinds of 911 calls do you respond to? We respond to a, a broad spectrum, everything from a first psychotic break to a welfare check on someone who's made suicidal statements on social media to someone who showed up at their doctor's office and just isn't acting right or is really far from their baseline. We will go to family disputes, children out of control, um, all sorts of behavioral crises and emergencies. And we, you know, trained as medics are also of utility if there's any kind of medical emergency. You know, the other week we responded to bystanders doing CPR in progress. We respond to drug overdoses. We're, we're kind of a catch-all for everything that doesn't have a criminal element or require a full team of paramedics. And with those types of calls, what specific services are you providing right there in the field? Mental health and medical care. So if someone has some wounds from self-harm, they've been cutting themselves, the medic on the team can begin to assess those, address those, while the mental health worker gets a better idea of the stressors that led the person to this place and figures out, hey, you know, where are the gaps in your support system right now? Do you have anyone that you're talking to about this stuff? Do you have friends or family that you've reached out to that you might be able to, or are you really on your own with this and and needing more support from community resources? So we're always trying to assess where where the gaps in this person's needs are and, and how we might be able to connect them so that they don't have to be alone with whatever they're suffering through. Well, Dan, here in Chicago, local leaders say that police should be a part of a crisis response system for safety reasons. Now, as someone who responds unarmed to these crisis situations, what's your take on that? You know, responder safety is you know highly prioritized in, in city planning and maybe even to to a detriment at times. I mean, we certainly see an over-deployment of police and shows of force where maybe we haven't tried our words yet. You know, personally, I know that I can build rapport with a client twice, three times, five times as fast if I'm there with my partner and law enforcement is not on scene. Once we're kind of lumped in with law enforcement, we lose a lot of trust with sizable portions of our community. And I imagine it would be the same, if not worse, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so having that delineation from being government, city government, or, you know, a, a part of the police, being our own distinct nonprofit organization, buys us a, a ton of trust with the community. And if we don't have trust with the community, we can't do our jobs. You, you talked about addressing an obvious need when the CAHOOTS program started back more than 30 years ago. Why exactly did you feel the need to reimagine public safety back then? You know, I think it, it was a similar situation to what we have now. You know, there were a lot of disenfranchised folks on the street, disorganized, caught up in a cycle of addiction or suffering from mental illness. And, you know, society didn't know how to handle these folks. Our systems didn't know how to handle these folks. And so 
they were getting institutionalized and incarcerated and kind of this non-humanistic, traumatizing, and expensive way of dealing with things. And so counselors, physicians, other healthcare practitioners began to recognize we're not really getting anywhere with this. We're not supporting our community. We're just kind of contributing to this endless cycle of bureaucratic suffering. And so what can we do to try and interrupt this process? And so we certainly see that still. You know, we haven't fixed the issues of homelessness. We haven't fixed the issues of mental health and addiction. Um, We are still a crisis response team, which, you know, 99% of the time means we're responding after things have gone pretty poorly. You know, the Kumhoots model gets a ton of praise, Dan, um, whether it's through the media, public safety experts, the name is always mentioned. Uh, but I wonder, when you think about what your process really looks like on the ground, do you see any gaps in the model? Huge gaps. I mean, so, I, I mean, as far as our model, like, I'm very proud of the work that we do. And, you know, we serve a a distinct and necessary function. So as far as handling mental health calls in, instead of the police handling behavioral crises, we're playing our part to the fullest. But anybody who works in any of the human services is confronted on a daily basis with the massive gaps in social services that exist in this country. You know, from trying to get a, a victim of domestic violence into a shelter where, you know, there's there's no beds available at the safe house to trying to find a place for a, you know, disenfranchised youth who has a toxic and dangerous home living environment to shelter options for folks afflicted with severe persistent mental illness. We simply don't have enough social service infrastructure in this country to adequately support our communities. Dan, what I'm hearing from you then is the CAHOOTS model for public safety makes a huge difference in de-escalation and how emergency calls are responded to but that it's strongly reliant on cities already having strong social service systems in place. Is that where you think cities looking to replicate this model should focus on, on social services? Absolutely. You know, I think that's what we mean when we say defund the police. You know, it's not this, you know, conspiracy to put good people out of work. Um, it's it's just recognizing that we are responding by the time things have already gone wrong. We already have epidemics of, of mental illness and violence in the homes of of children, and and we're we're showing up too late. There there aren't enough services to to interrupt these cycles. So absolutely, we we need to invest in our community. We always say that our service is only as strong as the community resources that I can connect someone with. Right? If if I'm on a mental health call and there's someone experiencing acute suicidality and depression, but there isn't a single therapist I can get them into, or the wait lists are are two months long, you know, that person's going to be kind of stuck having to rely on crisis services or the emergency room until they can actually get a a long-term care provider who's really going to be able to deep dive on their issues, do some trauma work, address whatever the need is. Investing in long-term care for One another is the best money we can spend. That is Dan Felt, a crisis responder for White Bird Clinic's CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
And that's today's Reset. All month on the podcast, we're bringing you our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we ask, how does Chicago work and how could it work better for residents? We're tackling city government, community investment, public safety, and schools. As we roll out this special project, we'll still bring you the weekly news recap every Friday. Thanks for listening, and take a few seconds to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.